Let's give another hand for our worship team. I feel like after that, like the, the lyrics are so good that it just, that's, that was my sermon essentially, like exactly those lyrics. So that's amazing. Um, so I'm glad to be worshiping with y'all. Uh, if you're new to Berean, I'm not normally the one up here. Uh, Pastor Paul has been traveling the last couple of weeks. Uh, he got to see his grandbaby and he got to go to a meeting with our church network. So he's coming back refreshed in so many ways. So that's wonderful. So continue to pray for him. Uh, from what I understand, I think he might actually be in town now. Is that right? Yeah, he is. So he might be sleeping. Um, but uh, once again, if you're new to Bring Bible Church, we've been spending our time studying the life of Jesus. We've been in there quite a while. And I get to do something a little out of the ordinary because I'm preaching from a chapter that Paul has already preached on. Uh, so I get to come from it from a different angle, from a little wider scope. And I'm super excited to do that. So go ahead and place a page marker or just keep the Bible open at Luke 7. We're going to be bouncing around in that chapter quite a bit. The book of Luke is three-fourths of the way through the Bible, um, right after Mark, right before John. It's the third book of the New Testament. Um, so there has been a lot of truth in this chapter that's been speaking to me. Um, I really need to hear it. I think it's crucial for us as a church to talk through it, especially in light of the Grow Hour uh, study we've been doing, which is called uh, They Like Jesus and Not the Church. So it's really an exciting thing to be talking about what uh, I've been learning this week. And like, because we've already studied this chapter... Um, it speaks to like the bigness, bigness of the scripture. It's just like a, it's a wonderful thing. It transforms you in so many different ways over time as you read it. Um, side tangent, last week I was, uh, I got the pleasure of sitting in on Dana's class as she was subbing in for Jeff Miller in third and fourth and, in uh, Sunday school. So when I, when I walked in, they were already amidst the conversation and they were somehow got to the topic of Satan. Um, and the Doherty's new foster child, Landon, was in there. And uh, Landon asked a question of like, so where is this Satan? Because I want to slap him in the face. <laughs> um, and Dana, being the professional as she is, she looked at him and said, you know, the best way to slap Satan in the face is to read God's word, knowledge. Um, so, and then Landon, thinks of, he says out loud, like, you know, like, I'm going to read God's word. So I want to slap Satan in the face. <laughs> so that's my sermon. Uh, y'all been a great audience. So. Um, <laughs> but like I said, this chapter has been, it's been speaking to me, and I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, before we get there, um, let's pray. Cool. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning, for what you're teaching us, for wonderful Bible stories with our kids, and for the things that come out of their mouths. Um, you blessed us with a lot. You bless us with a great church, with a family, for so many things. And we look to you in comfort. We look to you for wisdom, for courage, for so much. We love you, Father. Amen. So as you may know, Bridget and I have lived all over the country. Um, There's been a lot of transitions, a lot of crazy, weird things. Uh, one of the more jarring and funny ones that we've dealt with was the move from Brooklyn, New York City to Boulder, Colorado. Um, so in New York City, the fashion, the style, everything there is just, it's really cool. There's so much that people wear. It's all over the place. But something that Bridget and I really honed in on was just the amount of black and dark colors you can wear. So it was really common for people to wear like black shoes, black pants, black belt, black shirt, black sweater, dark coat. Um, and it's, we were all about that. Uh, you may not be, but we loved it. And uh, so I'm not really much of a fashion person. Um, 
I don't really consider it like a hobby of mine, but I became fascinated with the peacoat. Hopefully you know what a peacoat is, but in my mind, when someone was walking down the street wearing a peacoat, they were like a commander. Like, if they were wearing like a cable and a sweater and a peacoat and they walked onto a, a boat, they were immediately the captain. Um, <laughs> or if, like, say, a gentleman was walking down the street in New York City wearing a peacoat, happened to stumble upon a movie set, the director probably handed them the script and said, you're now the lead actor. So I wanted that. I wanted to be that kind of person, so I went out and bought a peacoat, and I was super excited. I didn't get the scripts in the mail, but I, was, I still felt awesome. But quickly after that, we started our move from New York City to Boulder, Colorado. And when we landed in Boulder, uh, we immediately went to the downtown area, which is called Pearl Street. We parked, and we were excited to get to know this new city that was now ours. And so I opened the car, got my Pico, put it on, feeling awesome as we were walking towards Pearl Street. And we quickly noticed that everyone was wearing really brightly colored puffer-down jackets. And, like, no one's wearing a collar. Everyone is, like, anticipating going on a hike that during their lunch break. So it's an outdoor city. So there, Bridget and I were looking at our clothes, like, we look like tourists. Like, this, we don't fit in. So we immediately went to our car, grabbed our down jackets, and went to downtown and, like, went to our new personas that we basically had to create. Um, so now I know some of you, you know, don't really care what you look like. You, like, walk around life unashamed until you... Good job. But for the rest of us, um, unmet and different expectations, they hit us hard. We have all these thoughts in our mind of how our lives are going to look, how certain events and people are going to affect us going forward. And so maybe you've gotten that invite to a wedding or a fancy dinner party that said on the invite, you know, casual dress, and you listened. So you went to that party wearing casual dress, and you show up, and no one else listened. All of a sudden, you look like, like a like a lazy schlub, you're in there. And that affects how you like, interact with everybody. You look down on yourself, and you're talking to someone that's dressed fancier than you. It affects a lot. Or maybe it's bigger, and you're in this relationship with a person for a couple years, and they're really nice to you, and then you go on a date, and they start yelling at the waiter, and all of a sudden you realize that this person's a lot different than you thought, and you start to imagine your future a little differently with that person. Or maybe you interview for a job across the country, you had this wonderful interview where they're telling you they're a lot, their job is a lot different than the one you've experienced. They're really empowering. They're collaborative. They want to hear from you. And so you get the job. You go home, tell your family, hey, let's pack our bags. Let's move to greener pastures. This is amazing. You get to your new job, and your bosses are domineering. They're micromanaging. They're abusive. And you go back to your family terrified because this was the answer to all your problems. Before you think that, that wasn't my move to Spokane. That's not <laughs> the story. So unmet expectations are a giant source of conflict. And this was the case for Jesus' relationships with people in the Gospels, and it's a major hinge point for how we understand Luke chapter 7. So Luke chapter 7, it's a, chap- it's a really crowded chapter. There's many things going on, but I felt compelled to follow this fun idea of linking a bunch of different concepts. And Scripture is fun like that. So I want us to be open to how we can chat about it. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to set the scene, help us understand these unmet expectations and what they really mean for people looking at Jesus as either their hope or their obstacle. And then through that, I want to talk through how that leads us to a means by which our church can grow in our sense of grace and empathy in our outreach. And that is through acknowledging the method 
by which Jesus came to save people, which is by eating and drinking. So I hope you're not hungry yet. And then I want to talk through how we can follow Jesus in the same method, treating his people like he did. And that's with grace and self-awareness and not self-righteousness. So that's the plan. So the Justin Arnold Kenny Bliker came and read the text, and I want to talk through this morning. And we heard about how the straight shooting John the Baptist began to question and doubt Jesus, and if he was the one coming with the authority of God. And this isn't the first time this straight shooting man got in trouble with his bluntness, because he's currently in prison at this time in the story for his words against the rulers. So he obviously is puzzled and disappointed, and he might, now I stress might because I don't, I don't have the right to speak into scripture, but he might be thinking that God is on earth now. We have no need to cower before the rulers of men. Then he wound up in a jail cell communicating with people via message. So something real quick I want to point out is that this is John the Baptist. So we, we come to find that Jesus thinks very highly of this man, and he humbly doubts God here, and that is okay. So wrestling with this part of our faith is, is part of our growth, and it shows that even when we do mess up in looking at our creator, there's a path back. So, but John is puzzled by this man claiming to be God. This man that he met, baptized, and actually saw the heavens open up, to which God said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. He witnessed that. But remember, life circumstances brought him to a place of frustration. And he sends his messengers to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, I love Jesus' response here. See, because in Luke chapter 7, it starts with a story of Jesus healing a centurion's servant from a distance, and then it moves on to a story of Jesus healing or raising a dead man from the grave as his mother is walking him out to his burial site. And then verse 21 says, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. So I like to think that Jesus heard the question from the messengers like while literally healing someone from leprosy, kind of like deadpan staring them in the face, like, you see this? Because a lot was happening. And, and in verse 22 through 23, it says, Jesus said to them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So this is, this is a fun answer because he's quoting the Old Testament, mostly from Isaiah 35. And he knows that John would know this. So it's not just an answer that says, like, look what's happening, look at all this stuff, like mic drop. He's, it's one loaded with allusion to what they both know to be the truth spoken and written from the past. So John the Baptist was reminded of what he already knew. And John was self-aware as a follower of God in his way. So he's back on straight, he's good to go, and he knew the gravity of the situation and whom he was speaking. But when Jesus looked out at the crowd, the one that was always following him, and he knew that he needed to unpack this more because they were different than John, and they needed more convincing. Because John the Baptist, he was a force that split the populace. He preached a message that required people to confess and repent their sins to really follow God. So many were baptized by him, but a whole lot were actually, they refused baptism by him. And a lot of those were Pharisees. 
Pharisees were a zealous and routinely religious sect within Judaism that prided themselves in keeping the law and the procedures of impurity or purity. And they were content thinking that the religious merit and their zeal would get them into heaven and that their few sins would be overlooked by their benign judge. And a lot of the Pharisaical culture led them to this because they didn't really feel a need for forgiveness. They were dulled to that. They had a familiarity with the ritual by which their religious life was. They were missing the point of it all. They had a shallow faith didn't have them contemplate God in a way that had them reflect on sin. They were self-righteous, and then they had sin's grip on them in a way where they couldn't let go of things they could excuse away, essentially. So Jesus basically acknowledged to their face that there was no pleasing them in this. And he used what happened with John to show that self-awareness of sin and self produces what that produces. So in verses 31-35, Jesus looked out and said, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Uh, a dirge is a song of mourning you should play at funerals. But for John the Baptist, he has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you look at him and you say, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. So they demonized John for his seclusion and for telling them they needed to repent. He was counter to them. And then they scandalized Jesus because he was out eating and drinking with tax collectors and prostitutes and for being a friend of sinners. He was also counter to them. So, was there really a way to please these people? Now, the Son of Man came eating and drinking is what I really want to talk about later, but I have some steps to get to before I get there, so keep that in mind going forward. But I want to first out, I want to point out that we are not that dissimilar from the Pharisees in this situation. Many of us have been guilty of looking out at Christians as a whole, Christian churches, and thinking something like, that group is a little too serious. They're too doctrinally focused. And that group is a little bit gushy, emotional, too frivolous with their theology. And people, we are tempted ultimately to want God to dance to our own tune. So we, if we aren't careful, nothing will please a heart that isn't aware of the big picture or doesn't feel the weight of sin. But church... What a grace from God to be on our knees and feel our need for him. So what Jesus wants for us and for people like the Pharisees is to abandon any delusions of self-sufficiency. And the Max former pastor, Art Kent Hughes, uh, he speaks to this saying, we must stop looking for a God small enough to allow us to pretend that our imperfect righteousness is okay. We must stop looking for a salvation that is small enough to be earned. I'm going to read that again because I was, I was pretty big. We must stop looking for a God small enough to allow us to pretend our imperfect, imperfect righteousness is okay. And we must stop looking for a salvation that is small enough to be earned. So let's see how this translates in, in Simon's dinner party. 
in this same chapter, verses 36 to 39, they say, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, which, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So we don't know why Simon, the Pharisee, invited Jesus to this dinner. It could have been because he was hoping to name drop later that he had Jesus at his house. It could have been out of genuine curiosity. It could have been because he was following the normal custom, inviting traveling rabbis to their house for dinner afterwards, after the teaching. But whatever the reason, there was animosity present. Because he omitted a good deal of common courtesies, if not all the common courtesies. So let me explain to you what a dinner party in this time looked like. Normally, the host played a bigger part. He invited the guest in. He greeted them with a hand on the shoulder and gave them a kiss of peace. Normally, they remove the sandals. The other servants remove the sandals and wash their feet to give them a sense of refreshment. And when they reclined at the table, they were anointed with oil. This was all normal and expected at these kind of parties. And these parties took place at the homes of the well-to-do Jewish leaders in the town, and they were built around a central courtyard where a big dinner was served. And the guests reclined at this table in a way, they're basically at like low-laying sofas with their feet pointed away from the meal because their feet were unclean. And the crazy thing is that they didn't value privacy at these parties. So they had big windows, and the doors were open, and they essentially turned their dinners into viewings. For everyone that's walking down the street, they could see what this dinner party looked like. Some people would walk off, off the street and give their like, respects to the owner of the house. They would enact business, or they would even contribute to the conversations that were happening. These were public dinners. So these people, because Jesus had a crowd following them, so everyone was basically watching this dinner, and they were very aware that Simon had slighted Jesus, Simon and the Pharisees, because the normal customs for a guest were avoided by these Pharisees. And this was a very calculated act by Simon to make it look like Jesus was crashing that party. So why did Simon and the Pharisees act like this? See, Jesus wasn't the son of man they expected. The Jewish leaders of this time expected the son of man to come and vindicate the righteous and defeat God's enemies. They expected their own definition of glory and power. They wanted the Son of Man to defeat the Romans and reestablish this earthly kingdom that put them back in the seat of power. They surely didn't expect him to come eating and drinking with sinners. See, what Jesus was hearing from the Pharisees was that he was a glutton and a drunkard. He was a friend of tax collectors and prostitutes. And that accusation, glutton and drunkard, is a really interesting accusation for two reasons. The first one is that it means that Jesus was out and about, eating so much they would call him a glutton, and drinking so much they would call him a drunkard. So we assume that's quantity of times out and not volume. But he was doing this with sinners. 
And we'll come back to this because that's a controversial piece of the pie. But reason number two is that this phrase connects Jesus to Deuteronomy chapter 21. And this chapter in the Old Testament is a story about what to do with a rebellious son. So in this story, a rebellious son is stubborn and lazy, and he won't listen to his parents even when he's being disciplined. So his parents bring this rebellious son to the elders, and they together say that this is a glutton and a drunkard, word for word, and they order him to be stoned to death. So that's sad, but it's illuminating in light of what we just read back in verses 33 to 35. I'll read that again. For John, the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. For the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. It's a weird way to end that. Like, what on earth does that mean? I, I racked my brain on that for a bit, and I got to reading in Tim Chester's book, A Meal with Jesus, whose thoughts inspired a lot of the sermon. He, see, he, he links this phrase to Deuteronomy 21. Basically, he sums it down to asking the question, who really is the rebellious son here? So this is one of the coolest things ever. Uh, I'm going to explain it by examining the woman that interrupts this dinner party. So we're going we're to do this gradually. So this, this party is happening. Everyone's having a good time at Jesus' expense. And they wanted to turn him into an object of disdain. Then in walks this woman, widely regarded as a sinner. By the language of this, it's implied that she was a prostitute. And Luke loves to use examples with tax collectors and prostitutes, since they represented what the Pharisees thought of as the worst of the worst. They were the traitors, the unclean, the untouchable. And remember, Pharisees, they held these laws of impurity, like, to the utmost. They believe if you touch something or someone that was unclean, you became unclean. And they basically transferred the Old Testament laws of the temple into their home and into their daily life. So this woman was an infestation of uncleanliness, and she just walked into the room, into this dinner party. And imagine the stairs as she walks up right to the man of the the hour and touches him. So this party got uncomfortable really quick. And this story is only 14 verses, but so much is happening here. Because she didn't have water to wash his feet, so she used tears. Obviously something emotionally is happening because she weeped enough to provide water. And she doesn't have a towel, so she uses what she can, which she lets down her hair. Like, what? Her hair. And that's big because at, in this time, in a very different culture, letting down your hair is reserved for your husband. Remember, culture is very different back then, and it's written in their extra-biblical Mishnah law that a man can divorce a woman because she let down her hair in the presence of another man that wasn't her husband. So this is a really big deal all of a sudden. And, he's tu- and she's touching Jesus' body with her hair and her lips. So this, these Pharisees, they could be thinking... Is he a client of hers? Do they know each other? Does he know what kind of woman this is? Does he know the laws of impurity? See, they wanted Jesus to be a doctor and that avoided the sick. 
And this woman didn't belong here. Her behavior was inappropriate. It was intimate. But Jesus didn't stop her. He knew her heart. He knew that this was an act of love and not one that was erotic. And his reputation was at stake. So Simon says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So check this out. Jesus is happy to link his identity with hers, just like he's happy to link his identity to you and to me. So he keeps getting called friend of sinners, and Jesus nor Luke do anything to defend against this accusation. In fact, they go on to prove it. So I want to stop here for a second and take a breather. I want to ask some questions. I want us to think about these. Have you, or have we, grasped this kind of grace displayed here? Do we celebrate grace, or do we feel uncomfortable and scandalized by it? As it turns out, that's kind of a trick question, because grace tends to be uncomfortable and embarrassing, because much of what Jesus did was disruptive. And what we, as a church, think of that is that we don't like to be disrupted. We are tempted to see marginalized people in the church as problems to be solved. So let's get serious for a second. I'm going to ask more questions, and I want you to be honest with yourself. Let these sink on your heart. And I'm speaking to myself in these questions, too, okay? If someone who looked different than you walked through those doors on a Sunday, what emotions are going through your heart? Do you see people with a disability or people dealing with depression and anxiety as a situation to endure or solve? If a Muslim walked through those doors genuinely curious about our faith, are you uncomfortable? If Kanye West puts out an album with insanely beautiful Christian lyrics, what's your first impulse? If a younger person with ripped jeans and a t-shirt walk through those doors, are you going to tell them you need to dress better to worship with us in this room? See, Tim Chester says, involvement with people of any kind, since we're all broken, begins with a profound grasp of God's grace. But our instincts, ironically, can be to avoid broken people. But Jesus ate with them. He drank with them. And I'll clue you in why that's a big deal in a minute. But get this, not only did Jesus eat with these sinners or drink with these sinners, the poor, the marginalized, the scandalous, the unclean, he died for them. He died for you, he died for me. And if your impulse is self-righteousness, let grace wash you. Let this truth work on you and pray to God to make empathy and self-awareness a part of your daily worship. So let's jump back to Deuteronomy 21. So after the stoning of the rebellious son, it continues in a really fascinating way. Verses 22 to 23 read, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on that tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So this is where my study hit me in the chest like Mike Tyson in his prime. Wisdom is justified by her children. 
So in other words, we'll see who proves to actually be the rebellious son. These Pharisees are, Israel was, the church is, we are, you are, I am. It's not Jesus. But the crazy part is, is Jesus is the one that dies the death of a rebellious son here. When you read that, that was Jesus. And this is the gospel. He looks at you knowing your heart, like he knew this woman in the stories, like he knew Simon's. Yet he took the punishment we deserve. He unflinchingly associates himself with your identity, us drunkards and gluttons and sinners. He knows we're continuously in the wrong, continuously deserving the death of a rebellious son. He says, you are forgiven. You are clean and you are mine. Now, I want to finally get to the application of all this. So there's two sides of the story. There's Jesus welcoming a sinful woman, and there's a sinful woman welcoming Jesus. And I want this to inspire us to follow this life that Jesus led of eating and drinking. Those of us who have been hurt by the religious, the ones in authority, the majority populace, we can all see something in this woman's actions. And that's how much she loves Jesus. Because it took a great deal of strength and courage to fight the shame and do what she did. She knew the kind of look she would get, the repulsion that she would feel from the people in that room. But she saw Jesus was invited in there and not treated like a guest. Because she must have heard some of Jesus' teaching before this because she just saw the God of the universe, the Son of Man that was to come, be treated like she has been treated her entire life. And she couldn't stand for it. She probably noticed that Simon had Jesus there for entertainment, which is something she's all too familiar with. So she becomes the host of this party that it deserved. And quickly you find out that Jesus sees her as doing the right thing because he didn't begin by defending his actions of letting her touch him. He defends her. And he tells a parable. So verses 41 to 43 says, A certain moneylender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When he could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So he then does something that I find hilarious looking back at it from the future, but it must have been insanely jarring in that moment. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? They've all been staring at this woman the entire time. Of course they see this woman. But he's connecting her to this parable and to the fact that she treated Jesus like the, like the host that Simon was supposed to be, that he refused to be. And he does this to show that her response to being forgiven led her to such an act of love. So Simon doesn't feel the need for forgiveness in his life, which led him to look down on people. So Tim Chester goes on in this study to point out that problem people often have a habit of exposing our hearts. So when someone in our body falls to sin, our hearts are exposed by our reactions to that. When we look down on others, we are like graceless Simon. If they're smelly, lazy, promiscuous, whatever. And something else, something that hurt me deeply when I was reading this, is that if you look down on people for not understanding grace, you are also like graceless Simon. So that personally hit me hard because when I was writing the sermon, I was angry. 
I was angry when I heard that some people at Berean told others that they needed to dress better to be in here. I wrote this sermon like I was better than those people. Like, come on, Matt, like, get out of the way of what Berean Bible Church needs to learn about self-righteousness, and you're just doing it too. So let's not be okay with that. Let's have a sense of our need for forgiveness, like this woman, a sense of our brokenness and our mess, and let's see Jesus as the one that accepts us anyway. Let's see him truthfully as the one who died our rebellious son's death in our name. He links his identity and reputation with ours, and I want us to collapse into the overwhelming love for him that results in this acceptance, in this love in the way he does, a love that risks social disgrace. And I know it sounds like I'm landing the plane here, but I'm not. Take a breath. Um, I got more tangible applications because this, is, this whole sermon essentially has been a plug for fellowship groups. So let me show you how. <laughs> so we talked about how involvement with people, especially the marginalized, begins with a sense of God's grace. Not just a grace for them, but a grace for us. And this grace and mercy and love moves us to tell others of the good news. And like this woman in the story, we long to serve Jesus even when it's hard. We long to mimic how he loves. And remember how this passage told us how he came to love people. I'll show you. So the Gospels, they complete the statement, the Son of Man came in three ways. The first one is in Mark 10.45, and it says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as ransom for many. And the second one is in Luke 19. It says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And the final way is in today's passage the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So the first two statements are statements of purpose, why he came. And then the Son of Man came eating and drinking is a statement of method, how he came. So how did he come to seek and save the lost? He came eating and drinking. He ate with them, he drank with them. And we learned that he was criticized for this. And that's his mission strategy. It's awesome. Long meals that bled into the night, stretching out with conversation and grace. It's an amazing mission strategy. Robert Karras says in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And it's, that's true. If he wasn't at a meal, he was talking about a meal in his parables. There's parables about feasts and tables all over the place. We're getting closer to lunch, I know. But... Um, so he was eating and drinking all over the place, so much so that thought, they thought he was a glutton, they thought he was a drunkard, and to be clear, I'm not telling you to overeat or overdrink in a way that's sinful. That's a Bible study for another day with his complexities, but I'm merely telling you that Jesus saw meals as a means of enacted grace and community and mission. Meals represented something bigger with God. They represent inclusion. They represent a means of reconciliation with those estranged. So Simon's dinner feast was built around a different kind of inclusion, one that included some and divided others out. Jesus' idea welcomes all. And we've kind of lost this in our culture. Uh, A man named Robert Putman wrote a book called Bowling Alone, 
in which he kind of gives a lot of stats and figures, but he gives some clues to this, uh, some being family dinners are reducing in time spent now. Formal dining rooms are no longer staples in home architecture. The amount of gated communities is on the rise. Big front porches with like swings and chairs have been replaced with fenced-off backyards as a means of sitting during the day. And community comes from TV and social media. Like if I were to say the word friends, do you think of a TV show or Facebook or do you think of the people you laugh and cry with? See, the art of inviting someone over to your house has become just that, an art. It became like a big deal. People write books about it. It's hard all of a sudden. When it should be commonplace. So I want to argue that we follow in Jesus' steps and start emphasizing meals again in our mission strategy. So even if you're having chips and salsa around a table, that table represents coming together. Meals can be a feast, or they can be some cured meats and cheeses, which if you're doing that, invite me. Uh, Meals force us to slow down and become people-oriented rather than task-oriented. And like I said, the meal itself isn't the important part. It's the fact that it brought you to a table with people. So think of the why and how statements from before. He came to seek and save the lost. He didn't come to eat and drink. And that's like if Jesus showed up to Peter after the resurrection in John 20, excuse me, John 21, and he like brought him to this fire that was on the beach. If he brought him there and said, hey, Peter, do you love me more than these? And then said like, well, when I mean tend my sheep, what I really mean is I want to show you how to grill this lamb real quick. That's not what happened. So I want, I want this for us, for our faith and our love in God to grow us to where we can extend grace like Jesus did. So tangibly, I want us to share meals with people, believers, non-believers, anyone that will say yes to an invite to your house for a meal. And we're making this easy for you if you have anxiety about it by launching this fellowship group ministry because that's what we're going to do. We're going to gather people in homes and share a meal And you'll be surprised at how this changes you. You'll see evangelism synonymous with friendship. You'll see care and honesty invade your life in the way that you've always needed. And you'll see how God's forgiveness and grace will mold you to love in the way that he loves you. So join a fellowship group or invite people to your house for meals. Make this part of your mission strategy because it's life-giving and I want this kind of change for you. I want this kind of life to move you to following Jesus in the way that he loved people. So now it's time for the pastoral slam dunk of segues as we move from talking about meals to one of the more important meals talked about in the Bible, and that's for communion. We're going to transition to a time of communion. Um, This is a time for us to remember that God is welcoming welcoming us into his home through the broken body and the shed blood of his son, Jesus. The hospitality of God embodied in this table fellowship of Jesus is a celebration and a sign of his grace and his provision. So those helping with communion, you can forward. And while they're walking up, I want to remind us of this meal famously called the Last Supper. When Jesus shared a meal with his beloved disciples, he knew that meals have the power to reshape community and change the the dynamic of a people. So when he had this meal, 
He knew the impact it would have for generations to come. The symbolism here is something he knew we would need to be reminded of often. It unifies us and reminds us of our path to heaven and the cost it took. He told his disciples he was going to die. He broke the bread. He gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He then took a cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. So for us, for as often as we eat and drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So now as a body, we'll come to this table and we'll celebrate the Lord's forgiveness to us through the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross. And we'll have this time of communion. So these men will pass the elements down the line. You'll take, and you'll wait for me to signal so we can all take this together as one body. And if it helps you to know, these crackers are gluten-free. Okay? So we'll get started. This is the bloodshed for you. Sovereign Lord, thank you so much again for this morning and for what this meal represents. That is that you brought something new, that you brought something to bring us to your family, to bring us into what the heaven feast will look like and this party that will be for eternity in your presence, experiencing true joy. And we so long for everyone to be at that party because it glorifies you and that's what we want. So give us opportunities to be a part of that mission, Father. Bless us today as we move forward away from this building and into people made in your image. Bless us as we talk with people, as we eat with people, as we drink with people, and as we see what you're doing in this world that you've created so beautifully. We love you so much, Father. In the name of the Son, we pray. Amen. So may the God of peace be with you. Go in peace.